Hello and welcome back for another edition of the Northern Agenda podcast with me, Rob Parsons. I'm a journalist based in Leeds who follows the comings and goings of politics in the north of England, from Blackpool to Barnsley and Bamburgh and everywhere in between. You can read my daily email newsletter called The Northern Agenda every weekday lunchtime simply by signing up at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. This week, I've been out and about at a major property and investment conference in Leeds and taking a particular interest in why it is that so many young people in Northern England see their futures outside the region and what can we do about it. But there's loads of Northern politics news to digest also on a week where two of our best known Northern Metro mayors, Tees Valley's Ben Houchen and Greater Manchester's Andy Burnham, have been making national headlines for very different reasons. So let's chew over what some of those stories mean for the North with the help of friend of the podcast, Henry Murison, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership Think Tank and Advocacy Group. Henry, welcome. It's great to be back, Rob. And and thanks for having me back. I wasn't sure if I I cut the mustard last time. You are always welcome on the podcast. And I see that you're joining us from a swanky, the top of a swanky Leeds hotel, because you're at the same conference, aren't you? The uh, UK Infrastructure Conference. And yeah, very much on the on the fringes, meeting politicians, but also working with a number of our businesses and other stakeholders to make the case for the investment we need. Um, and yesterday, my colleague Sarah was uh, in the conference itself, talking to a group of young people, along with the chief exec of Bradford Council, Kirsten England, another panel uh, supported by Atkins, who'd, who'd worked with us on the report, who'd led that piece of work. So it's been an interesting and busy week for us, uh, but obviously also other things going on, Rob, as you say. Absolutely. So yeah, to give the event its full title, it's called the UK's Real Estate Investment and Infrastructure Forum. That's a bit of a mouthful. So it's known as UK Reef. And I was there earlier this week, and it, it's really a very big event, more than 5,000 people uh, in attendance, all kinds of networking going on between political and business types that I saw as I was walking around. But as you as alluded to, Henry, one of the things that has come out of it is this new report that's been launched this week into a subject that, I mean, it's really as old as time, the, the so-called brain drain from the North that sees talented young people leave to make their lives elsewhere because they believe, perhaps rightly in a lot of cases, that there aren't opportunities to thrive where they live. So your organisation, Henry, and Atkins, a consultancy firm, launched this report and the headlines are that of the young people who were surveyed, 44% plan to leave the north of England and only 29% expect to stay in the region. And it's young people living in towns rather than cities who feel the lack of opportunities most keenly. I mean, it seems like an obvious point, but I mean, this is why the levelling up agenda such as it still exists, why it matters, isn't it? I mean, we'll know we're making progress on this when young people feel they can stay where they live in the north and still have a good life. I think that's right, Rob. And I think what was noticeable was the different view of people who lived in towns about the opportunities available to them. But obviously, many towns in the north of England are in geographic proximity to a major city, but the transport links to get them to the opportunities aren't necessarily there. And I think my reflection would be that I think you, you are never going to create the same opportunities everywhere. And in fact, in some sort of more outlying places, the opportunities in, for example, Net Zero in a place like Blythe or across in the, the nuclear sector in West Cumbria, those are also unique opportunities only available in those places. So you can't, or for example, the opportunity to be involved in, in building nuclear submarines in Barrow. I mean, that, that doesn't exist anywhere else in the north of England, but it does exist in Barrow, but not much else that might be considered to be those aspirational opportunities is there. So 
I think that my sort of challenge to anyone really is why have we not connected up the north of England better? Why have we not made it easier for people to access the opportunities that exist? And, and why do we keep wondering why our productivity is so much lower? Um, so although some parts of the north of England, like parts of Greater Manchester um, and some other northern cities have closed the gap, have kind of started to see real productivity growth, particularly in the case of Greater Manchester, have managed in the last sort of decade and a half to close the gap with London. But that is where there has been some investment. I think the challenge is in many places, towns are still far too disconnected from even their nearest city. And that's before we get to the point of the work of what Northern Powerhouse Rail and the wider Transport for North strategy was always hoping to deliver, which is connecting people to more than one city easily from where they live. And unless you're one of the 10,000 people who live in the centre of Huddersfield, Northern, without Northern Powerhouse Rail, it's impossible in a reasonable time to get to any number of northern cities. Um, but we want, for millions and millions of people, the same opportunities that currently accrue to 10,000 people who live around Huddersfield Station. Um, and that's, of course, when the trains are running wrong, but that's maybe a discussion for a different podcast. But the theory of kind of agglomeration economics relies on people actually being able to get to the opportunities where they exist. And the reason we don't have just a sort of a skills or a wider aspiration problem in the north of England that affects young people. The issue is whether they can afford the transport to get to college or whether they can then actually have the services to get them to the jobs that exist is the primary issue economically. And we've got to address that if we're going to address any of the other issues that then come from that, because they're all linked to it. I mean, we have a labour market that's far too small, that's far too disconnected, even within city regions. That's even before we try and work out whether across even the M62 corridor, we could start to see a lot more commuting between cities, which at the moment, apart from between those sort of twin cities like Leeds, where I'm sitting in Bradford, that does exist largely by car. But once you try and drive any further than just Leeds or Bradford, that sort of city-to-city commuting becomes really challenging in the north of England. So there was a fascinating debate about this, as you've said, at uh, UK Reef. And I went along to hear from some of the young people who contributed to the report. Let's hear from one of them now. This is Akram Ahmed, who is a 19-year-old from Middlesbrough. So my name's Akram Ahmed and I have born and grown up in Teesside, specifically the Middlesbrough area. I'm currently working in the northeast region as well as a degree apprentice in the construction and engineering industry. Fantastic. And you have just been talking just now uh, at this this panel and you were saying a lot of young people on Teesside, they uh, have had to move to, to make a success of themselves. I mean, why why do you think that is? Absolutely. Um, I think the, the, the issue itself, it starts from the very top. It's what what we're fed and understood as younger people, especially coming through education. So when I went to school and specifically college and studied my A-levels, it was the idea of to gain a, a, a better life, you have to move away and, and work elsewhere. There wasn't really much emphasis on working within the region. And I think this really, you essentially, you... You manifest what you're presented, and I think that's what the, what we were presented growing up. So I think there should be more really targeted around making younger people aware of the opportunities within the region. And, I, and again, I've been very fortunate enough to still work within the northeast. And I think this has come be, between me because of me going out the way and doing my own little research and looking that there are projects within Teesside, there are projects within the area, but it's making the younger generation aware that there are these projects. Yeah, absolutely. And 
what are the big issues you think that what's the one issue you think that you'd like to see tackled that would make a difference to young people like yourself to keep them on Teesside in, in, in Middlesbrough I think the key thing that I touched up in, with it within the talk itself was leisure and I think this is something that's key especially we heard from Cameron who was part of Bradford City Council he talked about people earning their money and wanting to spend it within the area that they're earning that money if there's not those facilities available they're going to want to move elsewhere and I think this is key especially for the younger generation as well having accessible leisure facilities I personally enjoy going to the gym I enjoy accessing spa facilities I also enjoy playing football playing cricket getting involved into as many sports as I can and but I also understand that there's a perception that a lot of the younger generation are they're, they're walking around and confiding in, in the streets and, and I think this can in a lot of the deprived areas especially in the town centre this can essentially allow some people to fall into turning towards crime so I think it's having that accessible facilities for the younger generation in which they can understand right we can go here it's a safe place and from that you build a stronger community you bring you, you build a stronger abundant and people who want to better themselves and want to improve and want to improve the area they want to reinvest and, and I think that's key Akram, thank you so much thank you very much Rob And for a different perspective, I also spoke to someone who's hoping to make her northern city a better place for younger people to stay in the long term. And that is Kirsten England, who is the chief executive of Bradford Council. Let's hear what she had to say. I think that's something that came through in the debate, actually, that I think um, we started talking about Brand North and an actual fact that that we need to position the offer of the North to our young people who are born and raised in the North, but also to people from outside of the North who we want to attract to come here. Um, because actually, there's an ability to have a great quality of life, to access opportunity and build good lives here. We don't always present it. We haven't got the cachet sometimes that is perceived to be um, associated with some of the big cities. And some of the big cities are north, of course, uh, but London is a huge magnet, isn't it? People still see it as a place of opportunity, if not paved in gold. Yeah, and so there's a lot of work. I think there is a lot of work to do on Brad North, making it sexy, cool, um, full of opportunity, a brand you want to associate with. But beneath that, I think there are some real structural issues we've got to tackle. And we heard about some of these today powerfully from some of the young people. I mean, transport's right up there, isn't it? Just if you live in a a smaller town or a rural area in the north with an infrequent unreliable bus service no train connections um, and you you know you you aren't of an age or you haven't sufficient income to access cars and let's face it we don't want people getting in cars anyway then you are in a really difficult place in terms of accessing opportunity and we also heard from a panel member you know where one of the members of their family who had an opportunity to go work as it happens for Nissan but it was a three-hour bus journey ended up going working McDonald's well that's not a great outcome for young people People. and there's a much more we can do around the transport agenda and indeed some of the mayors and the city regions are beginning to move on agendas such as bus franchising but I also think we have to be in the innovation space about kind of uh, funding people's access to, to maybe to cycles or scooters to you know using more like the Uber model of car sharing as well and thinking differently about you know we're moving into the future um, but also um, what came through that was the concern about 
get the kind of the uh, fuel that we use in, in our public transport and can we actually kind of pivot into the electric buses and obviously a topical issue with the kind of anxieties there are right now about battery production so we're talking about what we're doing on that locally and regionally as well as around the hydrogen agenda so yeah lots around and it's a big structural issue and then I think beneath that I think for me because I think one of the things that was quite powerful I thought it was people not feeling that their education um, had equipped them for the jobs of the future uh, and not enough people being really confident they've got a high quality education despite the fact we have many and good higher education institutes in the north and I think what that speaks to is sometimes the lack of connection between employers and education providers and the relevance of the curriculum and really thinking upstream and thinking flexibly and finding and providing different routes into further and higher education yeah like degree apprenticeships we need to massively increase the amount of um, those that are available so those are two big things that came through for me now uh, Bradford famously the uh, youngest city in uh, Western Europe was it Europe as a whole I think, I think it's Western Europe yeah West- you're absolutely right uh, yeah, yeah. let me check but it's certainly in Western Europe and so yeah. you I guess know more than anyone about the challenges that face a younger population but actually there are quite a good few good and positive things going on in Bradford aren't they I mean obviously there's a city of culture coming up in a couple of years that, that there's that, just tell me about some of the things that your your city your council is trying to do on, on this issue well I think the first thing to say is to see that demographic as a huge asset for us so I you know got us on the front foot by talking about the us, you know hyper young 30% under the age of 20 you know digital natives right speaking 150 languages so globally connected and from a very entrepreneurial kind of culture most people so what is not to like about that and that's proved to be a huge attractor yeah it's, uh, it certainly was uh, critical in securing Channel 4's decision to locate its national headquarters in the Leeds city region you know Alex Mann said she wouldn't come to uh, West Yorkshire to Leeds without Bradford in the equation because the future is about understanding that demographic and working with it currently working on PwC's plans to have their growth hub in England in Bradford and what is that about they've discovered a talent a seam of talent of young people not all of whom have had higher education but have huge talent and appetite um, and are really attracted to working for a, a blue chip company like PwC so some of those things have proved to be big attractors in and of themselves the other thing is in terms of the future of the north with aging city regions you know to the north um, and a tightening labor market for all sorts of reasons we understand um, this is a huge opportunity the labor market of Bradford if we can get our young people ready for the opportunity of the future and invest in the transport infrastructure for them then we can get them out to opportunity as well as bringing them to the opportunity we have we've done a number of things to build that so the first is uh, we have what we call industrial centers of excellence which is uh, curriculum based further and higher education employers and ourselves developing pathways into employment in the growing sectors of the economy so that's advanced manufacturing creative industries uh, digital technologies health and social care and so on we've got about 11 of these and they're private sector led and so getting tightening that relationship has been uh, really important to us the placemaking we're doing is all from the lens of a young diverse population safe spaces places startup low cost of entry spaces as well as high quality venues and spaces retaining investment in our youth service so we we still have youth service not many local authorities do but we've removed 
remained committed to that. And then the, the final thing is we built the bid for City of Culture on um, with our young people. They produced the programme. They're going to co-create the programme that we deliver in 2025. Um, so it's authentically of us, about us, but for the world. And that's a very, that's a very attractive energy, really, to, to bring to the market. And, and, and so it's proving. Now, obviously, everyone in this room, in this pavilion today, knows about the importance of this this issue, this agenda. I, I mean, I, I'm interested in your view about whether it's this issue is on the is, big, is a big enough topic on the agenda nationally. Does the government care enough about this? Do our big businesses care enough about this to really to really move the diet? Like people talk about the levelling up agenda, it's obviously a key part of that. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels to me a bit like it's not quite so high on the national priority list maybe as it used to be no it, 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 does it need more than people like like us talking about this to make meaningful change on it? well it needs all of us talking about it doesn't it absolutely and I mean an interesting thing in the report was how many young people had one they'd heard of levelling up two they didn't think it was being delivered or delivered for them right so there is clearly a credibility gap on that basis I think it's probably true to say there isn't sufficient national attention to this yet um, or investment really in children and young people generally, I would actually say, for um, so, for some time now. However, what I do think is our employers are increasingly alive to it. So talking to some of our employers, um, and particularly in the private sector, not so much public sector, where the age demographic is that much younger, because we haven't worked hard enough in the public sector, they are really thinking about the meaning of work for young people now, and it's quite different than for the older members of the workforce. They want meaning, they want purpose, they want support, they want to be able to give something to society um, as a means to fulfilment, as well as, of course, a good wage and career progression opportunity. But they're definitely noticing the shift. And I do think um, big corporates, particularly those facing tightening labour markets, are thinking hard about this. And actually, that's the opportunity to influence government. Actually, a public-private collaboration with government to say, this is about the future of the UK. We can't thrive unless we have that young labour force that that's up for it, that can actually take our industries forward. And really, this needs attention. Kirsten, thank you. So there you have it, some reasons for optimism, but also a lot of work to do to make young people feel like they don't need to move to London or elsewhere to make the most of their lives. Now, it's interesting, one thing I noticed in this report is that young people like Akram, living on Teesside, actually do feel a bit more optimistic about their life chances than in other parts of the North. And it's interesting because that part of the world, Middlesbrough, Redcar, Stockton, has been at the centre of a political storm this week. Just to explain for those who aren't familiar with it, Teesworks is the name of the huge industrial zone on the site of where most of the area's steel industry used to be before it collapsed in 2015 with the loss of thousands of jobs. And the aim is to turn what is Europe's biggest brownfield site into a home for thousands of green jobs in sectors like hydrogen and offshore wind. And it's been designated a free port by the government, which means firms based there aren't subject to many taxes and regulations. Tens of millions of pounds of taxpayer cash have been sunk into the area to clean it up, ready for big business to move in. But there are growing concerns about how the body in charge of the area, which is the South Tees Development Corporation, is run and why two local developers, Chris Musgrave and Martin Corney, have had their stake 
in the company increased from 50% to 90% with no proper tendering process. There's also questions about how much money the pair have actually invested in the area themselves so far. It's a story that's really gathering pace, I think. We've seen exposés by the likes of the Financial Times and Private Eye. BBC Newsnight ran a special piece on it this week. And the Tees Valley Mayor, Ben Houchin, someone the government constantly lauds as an example of levelling up in action, is on the defensive, I think it's fair to say, over the way things have been handled and has been forced to call for the public spending watchdog to investigate the whole thing to hopefully, from his point of view, try and put it all to bed. Now, Henry, I know that in your role, you speak to a lot of businesses and get a sense of how they're feeling about sort of political developments in the north. So what 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 do you make of this? I mean, I mean what and what do they how is the business community feeling about this whole thing? Is, is it very damaging for Ben Houchin and his vision for, for Teesside? Well I think that businesses are keen to see the utmost transparency. And I think there was a separate article I know by the Telegraph who who'd spoken to some of the businesses or had uh, briefings from some of the businesses who were uh, getting involved uh, with one of the developments of Teesworks, including BP and, and assurances they may have asked for. So I think I think every business who might be looking to invest will want that transparency. And obviously, Ben Houchin has also been here this week talking to, to businesses. I know also talking to some journalists seeking to uh, to explain or to justify some of the things that have been called into question. I think my reflection would be that um, the fact that both the Metro Mayor and uh, a number of his critics uh, politically have all kind of agreed and calling for a national audit office inquiry. I think the Secretary of State needs to authorise that, though. I don't think Michael Gove has done that yet, um, even though the Select Committee, the Business and Trades Chair, I know on the day of Jen Williams's piece in the FT that you referenced, had asked for such a, an inquiry as well. So it does seem to be growing calls for that. And I think that's in everyone's best interest because as an organisation committed to securing more powers and responsibility for local places, that needs to come with accountability. And I think there has been a misnomer that this has all been a challenge or critique from people who are somehow kind of all linked to the Labour Party. I don't think Private Eye is uh, attached or has any affiliation to any political party. It certainly never has in in many years it's existed. And ditto the Financial Times as well. They're not exactly a a Labour... No, no, not not, not some sort of of Labour rag. Um, And I think what is particularly interesting in the Jen Williams piece is the reflections of Steve Gibson about the fact that, uh, in, to not to not pass Steve's words, that the business model that was adopted in order to make use of the Freeport um, necessitated a, a change in business model that hadn't been the one he had preferred. So obviously, originally, um, the site was going to be developed more slowly, and that would have allowed the public sector to retain more ownership. It was in response to the Prime Minister, the then Chancellor's offer of a freeport, that the business model was changed. And so I, I don't think in the kind of in the political to and fro, and obviously there will always be arguments, I'm sure, between politicians of both parties about this project and about the way it's been managed. And I think the business community are probably listening more to people like Steve Gibson about what he thinks about what's gone on. And obviously a very respected business voice himself, um, a politician in his, his youth, as I suppose I was, uh, but who has very much now supported politicians of all sides. I think he backed Sue Jeffries and subsequently Ben Houchin at various times. I mean, so so not in any way a, a partisan actor, but probably someone who has at various times still taken an interest in politics um, and is a keen observer himself of these matters and obviously was also on the board of the uh, Development Corporation, which 
which I certainly don't have first-hand knowledge of, uh, and many business people won't either. So I think it's a really uh, important issue that is dealt with properly, Rob, because I think it is in the best interests of not just uh, the combined authority in the Tees Valley, but actually of the, the, the wider devolution movement, that where there are questions raised about whether due process has been followed, whether, for example, the monitoring officer was in the room when decisions were made, a number of other issues which are do, do sound to me quite legitimate areas for, for further um, investigation and, and clarity to be given, that that, that, that should happen. Um, and I think it does hopefully send a message to local leaders that the things that Michael Goh's been doing, for example, to create, sort of recreate something a bit like the Audit Commission, which those of you old enough uh, watching and listening to, to date back in their interest in this area to the time I've been in it, that clearly having an independent body of politicians, um, both locally and nationally, but is responsible for ensuring um, that local decision-making is subject to legitimate checks and balances, that all seems very reasonable to me. And it was particularly notable, actually, you allude to Andy Burnham as well, and um, the trailblazer deals where there was more, there are more safeguards added, and the same is true for Andy Street. Um, and I think with greater powers, as we do more devolution, needs to come greater checks and balances. And, and I think that is the right approach. So in a way, democracy will, in the end, be the arbiter of this. There's a mayoral election coming up. The people of the Tees Valley will make a decision about whether or not um, Ben Hatchen has behaved rightly or wrongly. Um, and I think question marks over criminality, etc., corruption, all of that is maybe slightly separate to the questions of whether best value for the taxpayer has been delivered and whether the decisions made were in the genuinely in the public interest. Um, those those questions do also have to be answered. So this isn't simply a question of is anyone going to prison or not? Do you mean if if decisions were made that were not in the public interest, then whether or not that was criminal, I think people still have a right to know what did or didn't happen. It feels to me, obviously, like you say, there's been a lot of political to and fro on this, and perhaps more so because of it because it's in Teesside than you might expect in other parts of the country. It is a particularly the, the sort of political debate there is particularly partisan. I, I guess that's because when you know, like, as, as we mentioned previously, Ben Houchin is is cited by the Conservatives as an example of levelling up inaction in the north and when political brochures are being put together by the Conservatives next year in Northern England, you'd imagine Ben Houchin and what's going on in the Tees Valley will be fairly prominent amongst those. And if there's still a, a whiff of corruption or cronyism attached to this flagship project, it's going to be quite quite damaging. And I think it, it, it seems inevitable there's going to have to be some form of inquiry. I know the National Audit Office are they can't do anything by themselves. They have to get the go-ahead from Michael Gove to trigger a specific piece of legislation that allows them to investigate. But I wonder how categorical that will be. I mean, obviously, you remember the uh, n- not that long ago, there was a, a, an inquiry, uh, seemingly independent inquiry, into this mass die-off of crustaceans off the Teesside, Teesside coast, which, which came back and said that, you know, dredging, at the Freeport wasn't responsible for all these crabs dying. But it doesn't feel to me like that has put the argument to bed, really. And like the people who believe that something dodgy has gone on still believe that, and the people in favour of it still still back it. So because of the, you know, the partisan nature of Teesside politics, whether any independent investigation will be the end, end of the story or not, I guess that is uh, a whole other question. So let's move on from that to Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, perhaps the, the anti-Houchin 
who's been very busy this week. He's launched something called the Manchester Baccalaureate or MBAC to help the two thirds of local students who don't want to go down the traditional academic route to get a degree. So the aim is that young people will get the option of studying job friendly technical subjects instead of taking on debt to go to university and going back to what we were talking about before, Andy Burnham hopes it will mean youngsters in the region don't have to leave to further their education or careers. So this this MBAC would run alongside the existing English baccalaureate, which is a set of subjects opening up opportunities to A-levels uh, and university, uh, open it up to maximise student chances of getting jobs by guiding them towards subjects like engineering, business studies, and art and design alongside the core subjects of maths and English. Now, the idea has had a lot of support this week, but also some negative reaction I've seen from a few quarters. I mean, you've looked a lot at, you know, the the kind of skills that that our young people need to take on the jobs that, you know, will will, will help the northern economy. Is, Is this a good idea in your book? Well, I think it's really, you need to look first, don't you, at what, what the logic of this is, which is that, as Andy has highlighted, uh, and many of us, again, with showing how long my memory is getting for public policy, will remember the 50% target of people going to higher education um, was a Blairier initiative. And one of the critiques of that at the time, and I think the most interesting critique, well, what was the offer to the other 50%? And at the time, there was an offer that was about trying to give an equivalent and as meaningfully transformative offer to those young people who choose not to go to university. And fundamentally, we've not delivered that across the country. So I I think what Andy, I mean, most of the critique of this has been about whether at 14, you should be asking young people to make decisions which potentially take them away from a rigorously academic curriculum. Um, And I think that that's a legitimate area for debate amongst kind of policymakers and education. I think the overall response in the business community has been overwhelmingly positive. Our vice chair, Jürgen Meyer, who's been involved in um, the Greater Manchester Let previously and, and a long-standing employer in Manchester when he was CEO at Siemens that has its headquarters in the city and has long had a presence in Greater Manchester, welcomed this strongly. So I think whatever the, the rights and the wrongs of exactly how Andy's going about trying to value and better enhance the attractiveness of, um, of work-based routes the overall direction he's taking, I think, is the right one. And obviously, this is all subject to further negotiation with government. Uh, and anyone who listened to Andy's interview on the Today programme will know that he was quite open about how um, what he was trying to do was start a conversation with government. So those details about exactly how hard-coded this route is for people at 14, and also about the, um, I suppose, the challenge more widely that we have with getting young people into T-levels is that the challenge is that the, the rigorous, the academic nature of T-levels is a challenge because not all young people who want to work in, for example, the tech sector would have a good enough English and maths grade to get them onto a digital T-level, for example, which isn't just offered in Greater Manchester, also offered at colleges like that in Blackpool, for example. So I would say that if Andy wants this system to work for young people, I think the concept of a, a pathway that's rigorous, and has leads to great outcomes at the end for young people who are choosing not to go to university is a brilliant idea. I think the devil is in the detail, the fact that for many young people who are not going to get the required grades in English and maths at 16 from the current English and maths qualifications, what happens to them? Because um, without, for example, access to BTECs, which are offered at great courses and colleges 
across Greater Manchester, like Hotwood Hall, just around the corner from Atton Valley, which is going to be a huge place for growth and opportunities in Greater Manchester outside the city centre. Well, what what are we going to do for those young people who turn up at Hotwood Hall and can't do those great T-level qualifications? Because the, the irony of a T-level is you basically need the same entry requirements as you would need to do A-levels. So the kind of the, 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 the real issue is for those young people with huge potential, but as we know, often from long-term dispassion backgrounds, don't do as well in their GCSEs as they probably have the capacity to do because of all the barriers they face and the challenges they face. What are we going to do for them? And I, I think that's where I would put probably more of my focus. So I don't disagree with the, the direction. I think lots of educationalists and, and those like um, Alan Francis himself, obviously a college leader in Greater Manchester, the, the chair of the Social Mobility Commission, I'm sure will all us kind of wonks who like to talk about education skills policy will have lots to pour over. But our intention is absolutely working with our education skills advisor, Frank Norris, who used to run the Carp Academies chain based in Manchester, and with all the businesses we work with, is to try and make this a success and, and to help Andy and the government come to an agreement that reflects not just um, what the combined authority and government might want, but reflects the interests of learners across Greater Manchester and is absolutely supported by the business community and the, the further education colleges and the other learning providers, all of whom have a really important role to make this a success. I see also that Andy Burnham seems to be in the middle of a, a long-running feud, which I, I wasn't aware of, I must admit, with the Labour leader, Thakir Starmer, judging by an interview he gave on Times Radio this week. He basically said that Thakir's aides are seeking to undermine his work as Mayor of Greater Manchester through negative briefings to the press. And he, he said that whenever I go out there with something positive, the negative Westminster briefing machine somehow flicks it into gear. And all I'd say... Uh, to Keir Starmer is, 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 is leave me alone. I've been out there being supportive of the party and working for a majority Labour government, as everyone is. Uh, I mean, I was quite surprised by this. And you'd imagine, like with Ben Houcham, that for Labour, Andy Burnham's achievements are going to be a big selling point at the next election. What should we make of the fact that they seem to not like each other other very much and are sort of trying to undermine each other? I mean, I think in the end, clearly there's been a lot of speculation about Andy's ambitions at various times since he's uh, left the Westminster kind of political establishment, uh, which obviously he was a member of, right, for a long time. So he's, he's been in that world as well as now being in our world, if that makes sense, here in the north of England full time and, and present as well as, as the way he is. Um, I mean, at last party conference, clearly, some of his remarks were interpreted as being critical of Keir uh, and of the leadership. And I'm sure that may have left a bit of bad blood. As he alludes to, I don't think it's from Keir personally, I think he was saying some of those are around Keir Starmer. Um, I think there is a, a natural challenge, which is that um, as a popular, undoubtedly very successful politician, Andy Burnham won every council seat in Greater Manchester when he stood for mayor again the second time. We had analysed the results at the time and, and done quite a lot that showed that particularly middle-class voters across Greater Manchester um, switched to Andy Burnham in huge numbers. It wasn't in the the sort of most deprived parts of Manchester, he was getting Greater Manchester, he was getting the biggest swings, it was in prosperous middle-class parts of the conurbation. Um, and reflecting further on that, um, clearly um, lots of people kind of look to Andy nationally as a, as a figure of leadership. And, and for any politician who's leading the opposition, it's a really hard job and you don't have any real power. Andy has real power. Um, and I think, I think that in the end, this will like, lead to a much more grown-up relationship as the the kind of memories, particularly of last party conference, start to fade. I'm sure this year, maybe there's a, a different tone in how that dialogue happens and, and less of that kind of feeding of the speculation frenzy. 
and particularly because it's looking more and more likely there might be a Labour government, maybe there will be a lot less speculation about Andy's leadership ambitions. Then you could see the spirit that certainly surrounded the Gordon Brown paper. And obviously, Gordon Brown, when he was doing his devolution work, re- worked really closely with all the mayors, including Andy and Steve, who I know spent time particularly with, with Gordon during that process. So I, I don't think that there's a, an irre- sort of irreparable breakdown um, in relations. I think it's more that there are natural tensions between someone who stood um, to be leader of the Labour Party twice and has a lot of power now, and someone in Keir Starmer who might have a lot of power in the future, but in reality hasn't really got the power to do very much. Do you mean it's the, probably one of the worst jobs in, 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 in not just in politics, but in any walk of life to be leading the opposition with all that focus on you, but no ability to actually do anything. And so I think in that Molstrom, I think it's perfectly possible that, that relations will be patched up. And I think there are those like, like Lucy Powell, obviously longstanding political friend and ally of, of Andy Burnham, very much a loyal member of the Shadow Cabinet. And so I think it's perfectly possible that, that working through those people who do have really strong relationships and, and long-standing personal relationships that um, the Labour Party team in the north of England can come together uh, and fully back uh, Keir Starmer's leadership into a general election campaign. Um, but it's it's absolutely probably natural that someone in that job with that level of political profile is going to be seen as a an alternative power base. And, and certainly a lot of the momentum and, and remaining people on the left in the Labour Party look at Andy as their kind of one of their few remaining prominent figures who has any uh, remaining kind of link to them uh, and, and although obviously he's not of that political tribe Jimmy mean very much his own man uh, in, and not not part of the, the Corbyn project directly I think they though those people look to anyone who they think can challenge Keir Starmer um, and so I think it's probably more that group of people in the Labour Party who are desperate to have someone to champion their views who are looking to Andy to be an agitator I don't think that's what Andy wants to do at all uh, going forward. And as we get close to the election, any talk of uh, kind of who might replace Keir Starmer will probably dissipate to a very quiet background murmur rather than be anything that we might see prominent, particularly this year's conference. So, Henry, before we go, I thought I'd get your view on a, a big question, which is, is probably one that you could we could talk about all, all day long, which is, is there such a thing as the North-South divide? And is it a helpful term? For us to be using in our when we're talking about this this stuff, so I I asked because uh, I got onto this subject with uh, Alistair Campbell on the podcast last week, and uh, this is what he said: You have to remember the, the reason why we once did a thing in um, when I was working number ten, we did a a report on the North South divide, trying to show that there were actually greater inequalities within regions of the UK than there were between regions of the UK. Some of the worst poverty in the country is in London. Some of the worst poverty in the country is in Cornwall. Cornwall's got, you know, abject poverty in, in certain places. There are parts of the north that are very affluent. And I think, it's, I think it's dangerous to have this sense. I don't like the phrase the north-south divide because although I understand what it, why people use that phrase and they basically mean that the power is in the south, that the, the money is in the south, the population often is in the south. But at the same time, there's a danger that it, that it kind of it limits the potential and the appeal of the North. Um, so I think it's important to understand that, that sense. I think we were about ad- addressing inequality and inequalities were at their most, at their, at their worst, often in the poorer areas of the North. But we, did, we were doing it through some of these national programmes. Another one I would mention is New Deal, New Deal for Communities or the New Deal for the Young Unemployed. I don't have the data to hand, but you know, a lot of those people who benefited from that programme 
would have been in the south, London and the southeast because there was a lot of youth unemployment here as well. But I suspect that proportionately, that program would have helped people in the north more. And actually, I went to see uh, Alistair Campbell uh, doing his Vestas Politics live show in Harrogate this week, and he uh, repeated that, as did uh, Rory Stewart, who obviously was an MP in uh, Cumbria. So, I mean, personally, I, I do think that the, the North-South divide as a phrase is quite useful because it neatly captures the fact that there's far more poverty and poorer skills and lower paid jobs and worse transport in the North than uh, in the South, particularly the Southeast, even if there are pockets where this isn't the case. But I mean, I'd be interested in your take. Is it is sort of is it too general a term to be to, to sort of have any 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 real use? I think it's interesting, and clearly, I mean, Alistair was in government with with the the then Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott, who set up the Northern Way, right, which was one of the first efforts to to sort of to start to solve some of those northern productivity problems. I mean, the early work on Northern Powerhouse Rail was done under a under a new Labour government. It wasn't started under George Osborne. I mean, he picked up something. Uh, in the work of Jim O'Neill that had been done independent of government and a lot of the thinking that had actually happened uh, in the civil service led by by Andrew Lewis, the, the incoming chief executive at Liverpool. So this has all got a long history. Um, I think I, I would agree with uh, with Alistair to the extent that every one of these phrases is an abstraction. I mean, the red wall is, is used to mean any Labour seat that was ever won by the Conservatives in the north of England, regardless of the fact that actually there have been Tories in the north of England for quite a long time. <laughs> and so, and there's been marginal seats like Keithley, where Alistair's from a long time, uh, that have changed hands over the years, completely different to places like uh, Blythe or, or for example, uh, in the Yorkshire context, some of those uh, kind of more kind of traditionally red wall seats like in South Yorkshire that, that, that went Tory for the first time, uh, like down down in, in, in Northern District. So I'm, I'm kind of of the view that everything can be an oversimplification um, but when we talk about educational attainment in the north of England being a particular problem, we are particularly focused on those most disadvantaged places. And it's not made up that we have more of them or that the educational issues, even when you account for the different socioeconomic background, that long-term disadvantaged kids in the north of England do do worse. And there's ethnic reasons for that. But it, in the Midlands, particularly the West Midlands and the north of England, it's more heavily concentrated than other parts of the country. So I, I think that if Alistair spent the time that we spend studying these matters, he would probably also understand that um, for, although the North-South divide might not necessarily accept the fact that there is inequality in London, that's essentially a distributional problem. What can you do to ensure more of the prosperity created in London accrues to some of the poorest paid people? As Richard Lees always said in Greater Manchester when he was leader of the City Council, in order to redistribute money, you need to first have growth. I mean, you can't, you can't redistribute when you don't have any economic value to share around. And I think when there's still an £8,000 a year gap between the average earnings of people in the North and people in London, there is absolutely a North-South divide. But there is also an inequality problem in central London and outer London um, that is significant. There are inequality issues in every major city in the North of England, uh, over and above some of those wider economic problems, um, and they interrelate with each other. So absolutely, I want a more prosperous North of England as we become more prosperous, to particularly benefit those who are some of the poorest and most disadvantaged, particularly to influence the life chances of the young people growing up in those households. Um, and I think that's a more sophisticated way to engage with this debate. Um, I think Alistair, um, probably having lived in London a long time, is falling into one of the traps, which is to misunderstand that the North's 
political agitation uh, and economic agitation for change is not a seeking to ignore the problems of London. Actually, I spend a lot of time with Business London and with people in London thinking about their economic problems as well. And actually, things like devolution, which would be a big help, like the trailblazer deals to places in the north of England, would also benefit Greater London. And in our work on fiscal devolution, in fact, in all our work, we often account for what is the London element of what we're trying to achieve, because our common enemy is not London. Our common enemy, I think, is the Whitehall and Westminster policymaking bubble, which largely is what is responsible for our economic problems, because they don't understand the barriers to productivity in the north of England. And if they do understand them, they've systematically chosen to not act on them for many, many decades. Alistair, of course, was part of that bubble for a number of years. And although he may not know he played a small part in helping to address it by letting northern, the Northern Way happen under John Prescott's leadership, um, he probably also needs to think reflexively about the fact that New Labour did give power to London, did give power to Scotland, Wales, and very rightly to Northern Ireland, but failed to devolve power permanently to the north of England, created regional development agencies that were then abolished because they had no democratic oversight, because the referendum for a North East Assembly was lost, not won. I think if I was Alistair Campbell, I'd think about how it, why was it that it took a Conservative Chancellor to devolve power to the north of England? And what does that say about the new Labour project? And as someone who worked for the Labour Party when Alistair was in government, um, I have a lot of fondness for him personally. But on these questions, I think his analysis is, and his, his response to what we're trying to do as the north of England is less sophisticated than I would expect from someone who has his background as a, as a Keithley lad and a long-standing Burnley fan. And, and like Jim O'Neill, who always comes back to watch the football our chair, obviously he does come back religiously for those home games. So he sees what's happened in Burnley, what's happened through that legacy of deindustrialisation. And yes, the New Labour project brought great public services, huge investment in schools and hospitals in the north of England, but it didn't transform the life chances of people who live and work here because it didn't deal with the fundamental barriers to productivity effectively. Um, because although it was it was part of delivering a tram in Manchester and other projects that still carried on in those years, the transformational change we would have needed, for instance, to better connect the north of England up, particularly by rail, didn't happen under a Labour government either. So that 13 years of not making a lot of progress under the Conservatives, but they inherited a situation that wasn't particularly that much better under a Labour government. And that is something that anyone who's been involved in public life for the last 20, 30 years should reflect on. Because unless they did something about it, they're all complicit in the fact that we are in the mess that we are in now. Well, that is one for Alistair Campbell to uh, respond to or consider next time he's up north for a Burnley game. And Henry Muirson from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.